Hey everyone, I just want to take a minute to tell you about my Amazon number one best-selling book, Culture of Excellence. How do culture and leadership impact the performance of a team? For the past 30 years, one organization in baseball has stood taller than all of the rest, the New York Yankees. In Culture of Excellence, Colin Sumelia, that's me, takes us inside baseball's most successful franchise to uncover compelling and useful lessons in leadership. Culture of Excellence is transformative in its premise. It shares strategies you will want to apply and knowledge you can acquire to effectively improve your team and motivate your people. With three foundational pillars, you can become a more effective leader and build a culture of excellence through stories from the Yankees. And you can purchase your copy of Culture of Excellence from any online retailer. There are hard copy, ebook, and audiobook versions available. You can also purchase a hard copy of the book directly from me, and I will personalize it for you and send you swag items like a bookmark and a sticker. Head over to www.talent409.com backslash culture dash of dash excellence to view all of your options and learn how you can discover your talent altitude through my book, Culture of Excellence. Welcome to the Dynamic Leaders Podcast. I am your host, Colin Cernelia. Thank you for joining us today, and please head over to talent409.com to learn more about how we can help your team with their leadership and culture development. Wherever you are in the world, and whether it's the seven pillars of dynamic leadership, culture pyramid building, or anything else, let our team of experts help you discover your talent altitude. This podcast is available on Spotify, Amazon, YouTube, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. You can help the show grow by taking a minute and leaving a rating and review on your podcast listening platform, or by sharing this episode with a friend and on social media. And on to episode 135 of the Dynamic Leaders Podcast, this episode's guest is Shannon Scoville. Shannon and I met through a former podcast guest, Kayla Lombardo, and Shannon is studying some extremely interesting topics. While she's pursuing her PhD at the University of Maryland in journalism, she was also a swimmer in college. Both of her parents were athletes in Olympic sports as well. She's fascinated, as I am, by culture, and we talk a lot about that, as well as the growing exposure in women's sports, especially at the collegiate level, where she spends a lot of her time studying and trying to move the needle for exposure there. So let's dive right into our conversation. Here is my talk with Shannon Scoville. Okay, everyone, welcome to the Dynamic Leaders Podcast. Today, my guest with me is Shannon Scoville. Shannon, thank you so much for joining the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Colin. It's an honor. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thrilled to be able to talk to you. I'm so fascinated about many of the things that you're fascinated and I'm jumping ahead because we're first going to talk about sports and your background a little bit so we can get people familiar with you before we get deeper into the conversation. So I'm really looking forward to everything that we have to talk to, but let's first give the listening audience a chance to get to know you a little bit. So if you don't mind telling us a little bit about yourself, so please tell us, who are you? Yeah, sure. Well, thank you so much again for having me on the podcast. Uh, This is a really exciting opportunity. Uh, So I am originally from Cary, North Carolina, right outside the Raleigh-Durham area and grew up swimming. Both of my parents were college athletes. So my dad was a wrestler and my mom was a gymnast at the University of Maryland. So I sort of grew up being very interested in the Olympic sports and the potential to be a college athlete. It was my dream from the time I began swimming at seven to swim at the collegiate level before I even knew what that really meant. Um, (laughs) And so to be able to achieve that dream and swim at American University for four years was truly incredible. And I just owe so much to that experience for shaping me into the person that I am. Um, But yeah, so I swam throughout most of my life. I also ran high school cross country. So I do triathlons recreationally on the side and really enjoy the experience of pushing my body to the limits and trying to find out how far I can go. Yeah, very cool. And swimming is so I've had 
many more runners on this show than I've had people who've been swimmers. And it's funny though, when I think about swimming, it's very similar into running in the sense that there's, there's a scoreboard and it very clearly shows who won and who lost. Whereas in some other sports, it can be a little bit more subjective depending on what happens on the field or what happens on the court. There's a little bit more of a luck factor in versus like so many runners have said to me, like, that's why I love running is because when you compete, like either you're faster than the other person or you're not. And I'd have to imagine when you're in the pool, it's kind of the same thing. Like either you're going to swim faster than the other person next to you in the lane or you're not. Yeah. And, and what I liked about it was I wasn't particularly fast. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, but um, I wasn't winning against other people very often, um, but okay. I was winning against myself a lot. And so okay. chasing my own times and chasing my own goals. And I've kind of brought that into my current role right now as a PhD student and an academic. I'm, I'm not trying to beat anybody else necessarily, but I'm trying to write the next article better than the previous article or, or do better research each day. And so I like this idea of just challenging myself and, and being surrounded by other people and being part of a team and, and racing against other teams or competing in however I compete now as a PhD student, but, but mostly just competing against myself and, and chasing my own goals. Yeah. And that, that's such an interesting aspect that I think often gets overlooked. Like, yes, we, when we talk about excellence and we talk about the team aspect of everything and being a good person and supporting other people. And obviously in, in a lot of team sports, there are other people or other teams that you are looking at as potential rivals or as people that you're trying to beat. And I think what gets lost is what you've illustrated beautifully in the sense that in order to achieve excellence, individuals have to perform at their highest level. And then the team, as a result of that, gets lifted. And you can't perform as an individual at your highest level if you're not consistently challenging yourself to get better. And I love that you had that mentality in the swimming pool, and now you're transferring that into your academics, and later that's going to be in your career after you finish up with your PhD. Can you talk to us a little bit about where that mentality, like how you built that muscle, because I think that's something that a lot of us struggle with. Like when we meet failure for the first time, for example, we don't want to go through it again. Or when we're not the best person on the team, we don't find ourselves as motivated because it's like, hey, why am I even going to work as hard? I'm not as fast as that person or I'm not as good as that person. So can you tell me a little bit about, you know, maybe where that mindset or where you were able to develop that muscle and where it came from? Yeah, it's such an interesting question. It's something I think about a lot. Um, because so I also work sort of as a freelance sports journalist and I interview a lot of high level athletes and I hear their stories and their mindsets. And I think, wow, they're just living in such a different world than I lived in as an athlete. I didn't win very often. So I started swimming at seven. I started swimming summer league recreationally. And I was like, just on the edge of being okay, <laughs> being somewhat good enough to swim in the main event. Um, and I would go to my early club practices and I would have to be the first one in the water because if I wasn't the first one in the water, I'd get lapped. So I needed as much of a head start as I could get. And I think that like subconsciously created this drive for me that you don't have to be the best to be there and to make a contribution. Um, and I, as my swimming career continued and I started, you know, training harder and harder, it didn't mean I didn't get necessarily significantly better compared to the field, but I saw new opportunities open for myself, um, whether it was in swimming or then in triathlon using the swimming skills that I had um, and started experiencing the, um, you know, opportunity to go best time and what that meant for me and and just celebrating I guess my my little successes and being able to swim at the college level was sort of the culmination of all of that it proved that hard work does pay off and it looks different for different people but for me that meant swimming division one in Washington DC and it was just uh, the greatest experience and so I, I think I owe a lot of that to the seven eight swimming experience that I had where I was last or losing um, <laughs> but part of something that I really loved and I could see myself getting better yeah and what I'm even more curious about is so that attitude and that mindset is awesome. Were you able, do you feel like that lead by example mentality that you had maybe, do you feel like that rubbed off on any of your teammates throughout the years or that they asked you, <laughs> like, I, I can just imagine a scenario where, you know, that somebody, somebody recognizes you're not the best player on or not, not the best swimmer in the pool. And, they see you working and it just doesn't connect, right? Like usually it's, you hear the Michael Jordans, right? Or the Kobe Bryant's like the first one's in the gym, the last one's out and everything. You're talking about like the elites of the elites. And you don't necessarily hear that for people who, to your point, just haven't 
had a lot of success winning in the in the traditional sense. So do you feel like because maybe you weren't the best athlete, do you feel like you were still able to influence your your teammates with that work ethic? Yeah, absolutely. And the funny thing is, I think the fact that I wasn't very good has been forgotten as I've moved forward and continue to be involved in my team and give back, whether it's through mentoring or leadership or um, as a student athlete, I, I think I scored three points my entire college career, four years, three points. So like one of them, I scored finished 13th. Like I did not have an academic or athletically successful career, but I was making a difference in the classroom and I was leading by example through my grades. And that led to a lot of recognition from my conference, from my school. And so I became, you know, part of a face of my program. I certainly wasn't the face of my program, but I was a leader in my own way. And when I talk to classmates of mine, they like don't remember <laughs> that I wasn't very good um, because I was there. I was there every day and I was present, involved, engaged and leading in whatever way I could. Um, and it's actually it's really nice to know that I'm not defined by the three points that I scored in the mile my sophomore year, but but more my holistic contribution. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And it's got me thinking I was just at a practice yesterday for a high school program. I won't point out exactly who it was, but I was thinking to myself the entire time, like, I know this is a weird time in world history. And because of that, you know, we've had to maybe alter the things that we're doing at home, the way that we're going to school, and also the way that we're practicing traditional athletics and competition. Like we're not getting in as many huddles. We're not being, you know, as close one-to-one, you know, we're, we're out on a field yesterday and everybody's still social distance and spaced and everything. And I remember standing out there shagging some balls and I was thinking to myself, who's going to bring that energy? Like who is going to be that person to flip the switch? Cause right now it's, it's kind of lame <laughs> to, uh, to put it lightly. And I, I, you know, I understand it's a practice and it's a fall practice. It's a spring sport. Like they're, they have time to ramp up and they have time to put it together. But I mean, I think there is something to be said about being that person who is always going to work hard, no matter what it is. Like to, to your point, you were the face of a program in a different way than what maybe we traditionally think about because of your work ethic and because of the things that you were able to do, not just in competition, but outside of that as well, in the classroom, in your community. And that's like essentially what we talk about with everything. And I understand that it's hard to bring that same type of energy day in and day out. But you know, I think that if you put yourself, if you take some of the lessons that you talk to us about and you just say like, how can I get better? You know, focus on yourself, be a little bit selfish. Sometimes that that's okay. You know, all that's going to work out. And what I'm getting at is you're in a, a sport for, we'll stick with swimming that you mentioned is traditionally like an Olympic sport. And, you know, I'd have to imagine it gets competitive much, much earlier than, you know, when I was playing t-ball at five years old or picking dandelions out in the outfield when I was eight. Like I've, I've talked to, you know, I talked to Nancy uh, Hogshead McCarr uh, on my podcast in the past, and she was an Olympic swimmer, won gold medal in the 84 Olympics in California. And she was making like lifetime decisions at age eight. And I just can't even imagine, you know, trying to decipher, like, am I going to go all in for the athletic, for the Olympics, excuse me? Am I going to try and go to college? Do I just want to do this for fun? Like, how did you determine what your ultimate path was going to be? I mean, some of it, I guess, was probably made up for you because you weren't winning at the pace maybe that you needed to to be at the Olympic level. But, you know, it seemed like at least initially that was an aspiration that you had. So like, how did you develop that path to say like, okay, if I can't get to the Olympic level, how can I still compete division one in college? Yeah. Well, first uh, mentioning me in the same sentence as Nancy is like truly an honor. It's incredible that we're on the same <laughs> podcast here. She's at such a different level and has done so much incredible work and certainly a, a hero to me. So that was very nice of you to say. Um, but yes, I wasn't, I, I realized fairly quickly that I wasn't probably going to make the Olympics. Um, but I just loved it. And I, I don't know why, like I've been asked this question before and I hadn't really thought about it since um, while I was swimming, no one really asked me that question. I wanted to go to practice though. I loved it. I wasn't winning in the meets, but I could win a practice. And there was something about that knowing I was going to make myself better in that moment. And that it was a, it was a set time. I, what I miss so much now about not being a student athlete is not having that designated time as part of my day. This two and a half hours where you're going to get better is a special opportunity. Um, and so, yeah, I loved practice and I loved it 
from the time I was seven until the time I was 22. Um, I will say though, we, I was on a club team that was a big yardage team. We did a, we did a lot of work and we were morning practices from the time I was in eighth, ninth grade (laughs) through the end of college. And it didn't bother me (laughs) at the time I look back and I think about the, the yardage that we did in the practices we would do an hour, an hour and a half in the morning of lifting and swimming and then three hours in the afternoon. That's crazy. <laughs> but I didn't realize, I mean, I knew it, I was tired all the time, but looking back, I think, wow, what was I, like, that's insane. Um, but I just fully embraced it. If there was a practice being offered, I was there. Even if it, I was tired or got sick, which I did during a lot of these Christmas training workouts, it didn't matter. I was not going to miss practice. Um, I, yeah, I, I think that comes from my parents too and their experience as athletes, but I've only recently started to reflect on why, the why question, but I don't, I just, I don't regret any of it and I miss it all, all the time. Sure, sure. And I I appreciate the reflection and I want to talk a little bit about your transition as a result of that because you mentioned you missing so many different aspects of competition and the team aspect of it, everything that's involved. And, you know, I'm, I'm of the notion, I guess, to say that, you know, athletes are, I think, wired for the most part. It's it's very hard for us to drop the things that we're conditioned to do for so long. So to be in that structured environment, to be somebody that wants to be healthy and take care of ourselves and just so many other elements, obviously it's not going to be the same now as it was when you were competing in college or any time before that. But what have you seen during your transition now as you're a PhD student, you're getting ready to build a career after this? Like, what are some of the things that you're doing to, you know, continue to stay healthy, to continue to maybe stay close to your sport, or just continue to take some of those healthy habits that you talked about and incorporate them into your life, even though they may look a little bit different than they have in the past? Yeah, I really do miss it. I think back on it with such fondness. I try to get in the water a couple times a week. Uh, it's been difficult with COVID. Um, but as part of my PhD program at the University of Maryland, I still have eligibility, club eligibility left. So I can't be a student athlete, but I can participate on club teams. So I'm on the club triathlon team. Um, unfortunately, I haven't been able to practice with the team. But we're not living in the same states anymore. But um, that is something that I've, I've found as part of a team. I am thinking a lot more critically about the sports culture experience in the United States as part of my PhD program. Um, and there's a lot of questions and issues that are coming up in our in kind of conversations I'm having with my classmates, but, but I just appreciate what the four years of being an NCAA student athlete gave me so much. And I, I really enjoy being club athlete. It's a lot of fun to do a triathlon for fun with no pressure and not really a coach that's watching every split that I'm doing. Um, but it's not the same. There is, there is a emotion that is missing because it's less regulated. And that's a great thing for me for the time that I'm in my life right now, where I need to be prioritizing school. I need to be teaching students, mentoring, you know, engaging in the PhD life, uh, separate from athletics. But, but I just think that those four years, the structure gave me the ability. What it taught me was that I really can do more than I think I can. And I have a tendency, I think, to do that to the point where I actually get physically sick, but, <laughs> but I pushed through that. It like probably sent me the wrong message that I can continue to perform while I'm sick. Um, but it did, it taught me to never say no to an opportunity and always, you know, embrace anything that is given to you so that you can move forward and, and share your message and be involved and create a bigger impact. So yeah, I treasure everything that I learned during those four years and I try to incorporate it all into my life now, even though it's not the same. And I don't get to dive in the water every morning at 6.15 with 25 other people working towards the same goal. It's just a little different. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And what I like most about what you said is you're saying yes to opportunities. Like you're saying, staying, excuse me, open-minded. And I think that's something that we, we shut down maybe subconsciously when we get a little bit older, because we're supposed to be following one path. We're supposed to be doing this. We're supposed to be doing that. Or we're just simply interested in things that are a little bit more destructive, like getting blasted at the bar or uh, staying up all night, eating junk food, playing video games. Not that you know, video games, I guess, can help with hand-eye coordination to an extent, but the, 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 the ability to say yes and keep yourself involved. I'm sure you have different buckets, you know, like, I can only say yes to X amount of things and 
I got to prioritize, like you said, what, what I'm trying to you know, stay at that goal and, and everything. Like, have you been able to, that's, that's the question I guess I'm trying to ask you here is being able to prioritize what you're saying yes to versus what you're saying no to. Like, is that something that you found has been easy to do in this transition? Or is that something that you're finding that you're still trying to figure out? Yeah, definitely still trying to figure it out. Um, <laughs> I think what helps me is that I've never been a person that is interested in, in the bar scene or those kinds of distractions. I am fairly focused and I enjoy the work that I'm doing so much that it doesn't feel like work. It feels like something I get to do. I have I very much have the get to do mindset. Um, so I don't feel drawn to, I guess, some of the more destructive behaviors, but I do have a problem with not saying no. And I actually have recently discovered that I have a problem with um, thinking I can get things done faster than I really can. So okay. I will schedule additional things into my schedule. And then as I go through, realize that like that was an unrealistic timeline. I'm a little behind. <laughs> so <laughs> that has been a cycle that I've gotten into in this, my PhD program. And I'm kind of like, I didn't know I was that person that, that couldn't best figure out how much time things were going to take. And it's because I overdo things and I you know, take too much time to try to make it the way I want it to be. Um, so yeah, I'm discovering some personal faults as I continue through this PhD program that I didn't know I had, uh, that's requiring me to make some adjustments on the fly. Well, I love it because I think it takes a self-awareness to be able to audit yourself like that and to admit that, you know, maybe you have some shortcomings, you have some challenges and you're, you're learning, you're continuing to stay open-minded and that's really what's most important about all this. Yeah, definitely. All right. I want to transition us to talk about there's a couple of things that you and I click on that we're both super passionate about although I would say you're probably more you could speak more to like the technical side of some of these aspects that's why I want to dive a little bit deeper in with you today one of your focuses uh, in your PhD program and I'll allow you to expand on some of the other aspects that you're talking about as well. But one of the focuses that stood out to me was you're wanting to grow the exposure in women's sports, especially at the collegiate level. And now I'll start this conversation or this part of the conversation by telling you or by telling the listening audience what I told you the first time that we talked in the sense that obviously this platform is one of those areas that I'm hoping will help the exposure for women in sports in, in general. And where I see women in sports really taking off is something like the WNBA, where if you take the timeline of the WNBA, where they are now as a, uh, what, a 25-year-old league, and you take the timeline of the NBA as a 25-year-old league, they're in very similar positions right now. And that gives me really good hope that especially with some of the recent changes that they've made with their collective bargaining agreements and their players union, they're headed on the same track to not just make more money, but have better living conditions, better working conditions, more exposure, more TV time, more apparel being sold, more girls, more guys wearing all that stuff out in the streets. And that trickles down, at least in my belief, to all the other levels. When the pros can get it figured out, that trickles down to the collegiate level, that trickles down to high school, to middle school, and so on and so forth. So I'm in the position, I guess, that I am hopeful that we are continuing to move toward a positive direction for growing exposure in women's sports because of an example like that. But what I'd love to know is a little bit more about what are some of the focus areas specifically within that realm that you're thinking about, that you're writing about, that you're teaching. Give us all the insight into that exciting world. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you so much for that introduction. It's, it's so encouraging and exciting to hear you say that. I think hopeful is the only state we can be in because why not? Why not be hopeful? There's so much Absolutely. opportunity for growth and potential and it's exciting. And I think that everybody should want this because it grows sports. And if you love sports, you love sports and you love watching people compete. You love competing. You love the experience of being part of a fan community. Um, and I, so I'm doing some work right now in wrestling and wrestling is very traditionally male dominated. Um, but it's exciting to see the sport um, and some of the leaders in the sport recognize that the way to grow the sport is to open it up to the other 50% of the population. Um, and I think that can be applied to a lot of sports situations, creating opportunities at the youth level, at the, you know, college level, at the professional level, we should want more people to be involved in the thing that we love. And 
so it, I think it's our duty to to be excited about this and to give back in the ways that we can and to recognize where we maybe have failed in the past creating these opportunities and and not be afraid because what is there to be afraid of except exponential growth? Yeah, and one of the things that we also talked about on our intro call together was maybe some of the frustrations around that when you think of a league like the XFL, for example, one that fell completely flat on its face roughly 20 years ago, one that has since been born again twice now. And simply it's because you have men, you know, specifically the rock in the in the latest example putting their money and their resources behind a league that continues to fail over and over again. And it's a men's league. And yeah, I, I just, I wonder like, who, you know, we had the, there's the um, soccer team out in California, the the new soccer team. That's like Venus Williams and a bunch of, bunch of like really high profile names are all co-owners. And I think that's really cool, but I'm wondering like, when is a, when is a male going to step in, you know, somebody that has all this money and say like, okay, I'm really going to put, you know, somebody like a Kobe Bryant did before he passed away. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and I'm going to help grow this game because I know I have the platform as a male, somebody who's been privileged enough to you know, have these opportunities for as long as sports have been played. How can I help women? Like, is that something that we're, we're maybe overlooking uh, that, you know, males and the companionship and the partnership with them can really help the growth and exposure? Yeah, well, it's a fun question because this is this gets to the heart of what I want to study in my dissertation. Um, so I'm really interested in what happens if what the media that we consume is more inclusive. So, so right now, the you know ESPN is about 96% men's sports. Um, and so, what would happen if we flipped that on its head, or even split it down the middle 50-50? You know, we have Title IX that uh, regulates equal opportunity, but we have nothing that regulates equal media exposure. Um, and I'm really curious as to what would happen if all of a sudden people found themselves loving women's sports because they loved the stories, they loved the athletes. And we saw that with the U.S. Women's National Team last summer. We saw a country come behind a team, and it didn't matter that they were women. People loved the game. They loved the players. They were so captivated by the experience of these athletes. And I think we could see that across all sports. I think people are stuck in this idea that men's sports are more exciting. And that like makes me cringe because I think we've been conditioned culturally to think that. Um, and that's for men and women. It's just part of our culture. It's because the media we consume is that way. It's telling us that men's sports are more exciting. And I just don't think it's true. I don't think there's anything inherently more exciting about watching men play basketball than women play basketball or soccer, for instance, especially since it's a fairly low scoring game. Um, the gender should, does not dictate the excitement, in my opinion. So I think if we can help shift a culture, and that comes from everybody, it comes from men and women, it comes from um, speaking it into existence and and kind of questioning this idea that we should only be investing in men's sports because they're more exciting. So I think the the work being done in California, Angel City FC, I think is what it's called, um, is fantastic. Like just giving women a platform to showcase what they can do because they can do it and, and we'll love to watch it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I often find myself thinking a lot of those same thoughts and, you know, I don't know exactly what the answer is. And I think that's, you know, why the discussion is so interesting is because there are a lot of different avenues that we can go through, but I think stopping ourselves from, you know, just the, the true division, you know, girls and guys, and like you were saying, guy sports being more exciting. One of the reasons I think guy sports are maybe a little more exciting today is because of rivalries and because of traditions that have built up over the past, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. Some of that is, you know, that, that is women haven't had that opportunity because the sports haven't been around. So you, you can't, you can't, that's something that you can't recreate if you don't have it. Like you can't, it just doesn't magically appear. So I think some of those things will grow. Uh, but like the, some of the other things that I'm thinking of, like that we need to stop is uh, like Brianna Stewart, for example, one of my favorite basketball players. She's from my hometown in Syracuse, went to the rival high school that I went to and she is awesome at basketball. And I know so many people that have said to me, man, Brianna Stewart plays like a guy. And I'm like, 
no, Brianna Stewart plays like Brianna Stewart. Like she plays the way that she plays and she just happens to be really good. So you, you equate being really good with being a guy that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like the, the women's soccer team, the national women's soccer team is way better than the men's soccer team. Are we saying that all them play, play like men? No, we are simply saying that the women's soccer team, their talent level is better than the guys right now. So like we've been able to make those clear distinctions, but that language it still exists, and like that contributes, I think, to some of the bad publicity that comes out, where it's like, so, um, like the the Julie Ertz uh, headlines when right, right. it's like uh, wife wife of NFL tight end <laughs> Zach Ertz or something like just just something so stupid that I, I, it makes you cringe when when you think about it, really. But uh, what what are like I guess the point of me asking all this, like, so those are some of the examples of, of things that, you know, I've come across that I'm like, okay, those need to change. Like if I see somebody with a bad headline, I'm calling it out on social media. Like I'm, I'm tweeting at that person. I am, you know, emailing them if their emails there, I'm trying to get it changed. If somebody says something about somebody playing like a guy, for example, I'm going to shut that down and, and say that, that you, that's, you know, it's, it's like race in this country. You can't say those type of things. Um, what are some other things that you think that we can do, like just the average person that, that they can do to help advance the women's game, the women's exposure? Like, are there some simple things that we can do either from behind our phones or uh, just within the comfort of our houses? <laughs> yeah, well, at first, it's so awesome that you do that. I, I love that. You know, you see headlines all the time. Um, one example that comes to mind is I'm doing this work on women's wrestling. Um, and I was never a wrestler, so I'm, I'm coming at this from this outsider's perspective, but just someone passionate about equal opportunity for women. And you see headlines like, so-and-so proves themselves in the state tournament. Like, women shouldn't have to prove that they belong in any sporting arena. They belong. And a win doesn't mean you're any more worthy of being there than a loss. Um, and so that's that's something that's really bothered me. And I, I love that you called this out publicly on Twitter. I do it very quietly in academic journals that don't reach anybody. So you know, I really should be following your lead here. Um, I get all, you know, worked up about it. And then I write this long, convoluted theoretical explanation for why it's happening that doesn't do a lot of good outside of the academic world. Um, but I'm trying, I'm really trying to embrace um, opportunities like this. So again, I want to thank you for having me on your podcast. This this public scholarship, having these conversations um, with human beings is so exhilarating and so important. Uh, and it's great that you are creating this platform for people to share this message and advocating for equality because I don't blame anybody for these headlines or for this media coverage that I think, you know, leans more male. It's just, it's so ingrained in the culture. And so we have to be asking questions and daily. And I catch myself doing things that I would look back on and go, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Like, I know better. I'm learning more about how to make my language more inclusive. Um there's things I'm like taking out of my journal articles and when I reread them, going, this is not what I wanted to say. That's not how I wanted to frame this conversation. Um, and it's hard. It takes a lot of work and it's very uncomfortable, but we have to be willing to go there and we have to be willing to bring people along with us, even if there's pushback. Um, I have conversations with people all the time that, that just don't agree with me, <laughs> that think what I'm doing is radical and trying to calmly explain to them, which I don't do very well, why it's, I'm just trying to unpack culture. Um, it's difficult. And it's just something that we, we need to do every day, wondering why we're reading the headlines that we're reading. Why are we reading the text that we're reading? Who created the text? Whose story is being told? Whose voices are being included? There's some statistics. Um, I think NPR did a study about men being quoted 80% more often than women. So those stories are reproduced and they become part of culture and so many voices have been left out. So it's our job to ask the questions. Sorry to interrupt, but I want to help you get fit. Christine here from Sweat with Sods. Being at home has a lot of people in a rut with their workouts, but you don't have to be. My hit at home workouts require no equipment and can be done in 30 minutes or less. And if hit isn't for you, I also design custom programs that can be done virtually, in person, or a combination of both. I put my years of experience teaching classes and personal training into all of my programs. I've worked with lots of people and helped them achieve very different goals. So what are you waiting for? Head to sweatwithstats.com today. And don't forget that as a listener to this podcast, you can get a discount with code DYNAMIC at checkout. Can't wait to hear from you. And now, back to the show. Yeah, I love it. A lot of work to be done, obviously, and I don't say that to 
be discouraging. But I think to our earlier point in the conversation, you can be hopeful, you can be excited that this is trending in the right direction. And, you know, my three and a half month old daughter, well, by the time she's 18, by the time she's, you know, getting into competitive athletics, potentially at the college level, or she goes off into the workforce or whatever she's doing with the far longer portion of her life that, that she will have if she's healthy and happy, that all of this work that we're doing now is going to matter and it's going to be different. I mean, it's certainly different than it was when I was born and you know, that, that is progress in itself, but there is more that we can do and there, there are ways that we can be better. So it's definitely an exciting and hopeful time ahead. Now I want to transition us again to talk about another of your fascinations as you put it to me. And that is culture in general. And I don't know if that is specific to sports or if it you know makes its way into the corporate world or general population, however you want to look at it. But let's talk a little bit about culture and where I'd like to start is your simply your fascination behind it. Like what drew you to be so interested in learning about culture and all the power that it might have? Yeah, I definitely think a lot of my interest comes from sports, comes from being on teams, working with different people, seeing how different people think. And I, again, have had a lot of time to reflect on my experience on these different teams and growing up. So I'm from Cary, North Carolina, as I mentioned, which um, is fairly white, fairly affluent, not a particularly diverse area. We have the research triangle. So, you know, there's some diversity there. But then I went to American University and it just like my eyes were opened up to so many more things. And it's great. And I'm so grateful for that to recognize sort of different backgrounds that people bring to the table and different stories and experiences and, and values. It's, it's just been great. So I've tried to incorporate that into the way that I think, into the way that I write and work um, and watching different cultures and teams work towards a common goal has been really exciting for me. Um, but I know you're, you're really interested in leadership. So I've been thinking about that since we talked, you know, how leaders drive culture and, I'm very passionate about inclusivity and equality. So I, but I, I'm, I only know my own lived experience in terms of how that things have impacted me. I can hear from other people, but you know, I, I have not lived their life. So I'm just trying to always be listening. And I think that's something that, that makes a good culture is leaders that listen and think and ask questions and bring other voices up with them because uh, you know, your voice is only one perspective and you can't create a good culture unless as many perspectives are represented as possible. So if we focus a little bit then on like the diversity and the inclusion piece of a culture, I think whether we're talking about athletics or we're talking about the corporate world, there are some inherent challenges to getting as diverse as maybe we want to be with things. That's not to say that you shouldn't try to have a diverse workplace or diverse sport environment. It's just, you know, like you said, if you grow up in, in an area that is full of other white people, I mean, where, where are you going to find some of the diversity? It's, you, you can't just make people up and, and things like that. So there are some inherent challenges when it comes to all of that. But one of the things that stood out to me is that you talked about just using your voice and talking about your story and everybody's experience is a little bit different. And maybe, maybe this speaks to the inclusive environment a little bit more than the diversity piece, but how do we encourage people to use their voice and to speak up if they're not in a traditional leadership position, for example, like how do we, how do we make the environment so that you know, they're willing to do it. And how do we get our leaders to encourage them to do it without retribution of you know, being fired or being cut from the team because you speak out against something that may not be popular, or may not be the norm as it was in the past? Yeah, it's really hard. Um, it's I, I'm like reflecting again on my own experience as you asked the question. I think it took me a really long time to find my voice um, because I wasn't fast. So I didn't have a lot of skills that I brought to the table. And so I had the mindset of like, I'm just someone that practices really hard. Why do people need to hear from me? <laughs> I will work hard and they can watch that if they want to. And if they do, they'll probably, you know, be in my social circle. Um, and if they don't, then they'll be in a different social circle and I'll just keep doing my own thing. So I think it took me a really long time. And I didn't come into a position where I felt like I could speak up until I got to college. 
And until really like my sophomore, junior year of college, when I started writing and doing a lot of work with the student newspaper, and it was an outlet outside of sports where I was valued. And that was a, a, a new thing for me. I didn't do a lot outside of sports in high school. And so to come into this college space where not only did they want me at the table, but they wanted me to speak at the table and do more. Um, and they didn't care about how fast I was or even how talented I was because I'm not the world's greatest writer. I've never been the world's greatest writer, but I love writing just like I love swimming. And so through my work, I think I was able to be put at that table. And as soon as I was at the table, I think I realized there are so many other voices that are not at this table. And they're not at this table because either they don't feel comfortable speaking out. They've never spoken out before. So this is an uncomfortable experience for them. Or the table isn't inclusive enough for them to see people like them. And I've just, I, this is something I've really been thinking about a lot because I, I see around me in the world so many spaces where we need to improve equality and where we need more representation. And a lot of my work centers on the question of representation. So what happens if leaders don't look like you, if peers don't look like you, what would bring you into that space? And we need leaders who are willing and happy to and excited about diversifying the table so more voices can, being, can be heard because that makes everybody better. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the key point is the, the leaders themselves need to be open to that type of environment. Because if we have the leadership in place, I mean, I think we're seeing that in this election year, which is going to be over by the time this episode airs. But I think we're seeing, you know, people in leadership, it's not always that easy just to get rid of them or to move them out of leadership positions, whether it's an elected official or somebody that you know, just came into a CEO position or somebody that's an executive of of a sports team, it's not that easy to just get rid of them if they don't fit those values. And so you almost need to, you know, you need buy-in from, from everybody and, you know, that'll probably make it a little bit easier. But again, I don't say any of that to discourage folks. It's just (laughs) some, some of the realities of, of life that, you know, if you want to make these changes and you want these things to happen, you need to have that work ethic that we talked about in the beginning of this conversation to really be someone who can spearhead those conversations, someone who can get the ball moving. Maybe you can't do it alone, but if nobody else is going to be willing to step up, you have to be the person to do that. So, so many different aspects involved with that. I want to ask you a couple things based on your experience in athletics and then through your studies. Quite simply, there are tons of examples of bad cultures out there. Um, what are what are some of the components that you have come across, like some commonalities of bad cultures that you can point out to say like, hey, we should be avoiding these things if we want to have an inclusive, compelling culture? Yeah, well, I, I have some examples, um, but I'm not, I'm not going to get specific with, with naming them. Um, before I get into those examples, I do want to say that um, and to go back to the last question, I am hoping to be the kind of leader that brings people to the table, but there are things that I'm still not educated enough on. So if like something that I said was maybe not as inclusive as it could be, I think good leaders need to be open to criticism. So I, I encourage sure. that. I, I want people to let me know if there are ways that I could be better because I know that I'm only coming from my one perspective. Um, so I just wanted to say that in case there are ways I, I'm sure there are ways that I could improve and I want those to be, you know, shared if possible, if people are comfortable speaking up because I only have my one pr- perspective that I'm trying to widen, but, but that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> um, but to get to your question of bad cultures, I think, I mean, I think it's bad leaders, but I, I like to be an optimist and think that you could still have a good culture with a bad leader if the rest of the group is in, bought in. Um, the examples of bad cultures that I've been a part of have been problems of bad leaders. And I, I don't know if that's truly because it's a bad leader or because all of the examples of good cultures are because of good leaders. Um, I'm sure there are cases in the middle, um, but I think about the people that have inspired me and the cultures that I've been a part of who have led with integrity and compassion and empathy and, and recognizing that they're they're one of the group. I think that's a huge problem is if the leader thinks they're superior to the group that they're a part of, the group is not going to buy in. And there are a lot of cases where, where the cultures that I've been a part of that have been so great, the leader doesn't 
see themselves as any different from the group, but the group does. The group respects them and sees them as someone they turn to when they're in trouble. Um, so I, I think so fondly on some of these great cultures that I've had. Um, and I, I hate to go back to high school to give an example because I <laughs> don't want to be, you know, reminiscing on my youth, but I had a cross country <laughs> captain my sophomore year of high school where I was in a position where we had a captain for the first time in my club team, we didn't have captains. And this captain was just you know, the most down to earth human being. And she wasn't the fastest, but she was fast enough to you know, be part of the team. But she taught me what good leadership looks like. And I think about her and how our group was fun. Like we were excited. We were happy. Um, resentment is not a good thing to have in a culture. Our culture was excited. Um, and we were always you know, looking for ways to get better that were outside of what we were being told to do. We were creative. We were with one another more than anything. We wanted the group to succeed. That's hard to do. Um, but this good leader showed me that it's possible. And so I've clung to that hope and optimism that it, it can always be created with a group of people if the leader and the group are willing to try. Yeah. And I think maybe, <laughs> you know, I'm probably somewhat guilty of this as well. Maybe we make the whole culture piece a little bit more complicated than it needs to be. I think the conclusion I came to in my book, Culture of Excellence, and basically what you just described yourself is that the leader is the one that makes or breaks the culture. And if you think about the teams that you've been on, whether they're in athletics or they're in the corporate world or they're in your academics, the ones that you remember are the ones that had a really great leader. It doesn't need to be an individual leader. It can be two, three people, but the ones where the leadership was top notch, you had people that you could ask questions to and they followed through. You could go to with problems and they understood, you know, so many of the, the different things that go into leadership. And then you think about the bad examples and they probably stand out, but for different reasons. But I would have to imagine that far more of the opportunities you don't even remember because they were just kind of blah. Like they, they, that you were just there. And that is the unfortunate part, I think, of, you know, this world that we live in is very team oriented, whether we're in sports or whether we're in the working world these days, you know, we're not in industrial America anymore, where we have these factory jobs where one person is standing here, another person is standing somewhere else on the line, and we're assembling all these different cars and products and everything like most organizations these days are very service oriented. So you're working within a team setting. And I mean, when I have to think about some of my corporate experiences, it, I have to really think about some of the teams that I was on because it's just the monotony of every single day. Like there was nothing elevating me to say like, oh my God, this is the best experience I ever had. And there's, most of them fortunately certainly weren't the worst experiences I ever had uh, either. Those ones were a little bit more short-lived and easy to identify. And so I think a lot of times, and this is why I say maybe we make it a little bit more complicated than it needs to be. A lot of times we are in that middle ground where we're all just there, right? We're doing the work because we've been asked to do it. We don't really care want too much one way or another. We're just trying to get a paycheck or we're just trying not to get cut from the team. The ones that either go one way or another are the ones that stand out and you can learn a lot from failure. And you can certainly, I think, learn a lot from the people that lift you up in that, you know, help you fill in the gaps in the areas that you have weaknesses and challenges. And, um, you know, I, I don't know that maybe, maybe I'm simplifying it now too much, but I think if we just strictly say, you know, if you have good leadership, then you're going to have a good culture. I think that's probably a good place to start. Yeah. And just to complicate things even more, I guess the two most recent examples of cultures that I've been a part of uh, my PhD program right now, we're a cohort of three. And so, I mean, I wouldn't say there's a leader, but we've all taken on a role as someone who wants to move the program forward. So we're, we're leading each other and learning from each other. And it's, it's been incredible. I mean, I, I have some friends who have been in law school and they talk about the competitiveness of it and the collaboration that's happening in my program inspires me every day. And so we're, we're all leaders and or we're not leaders at all. It's, we're somewhere in the <laughs> middle. Um, and my college team, my senior year, there were three of us that were captains. And so and we were a fairly big team. So three very different leadership styles and very different personalities. And somehow we, we brought this team together. And I think there's a lot of things I could have done better. And I, I wish I could have made more of a difference. Um, 
but to think about these two examples where you have three leaders, which is a, a weird number, and three is never usually good, but in these two cases, three, <laughs> three created a complicated culture of good leadership, I think, in my biased opinion. Yeah, yeah, that's that's too funny. The threes threes never work. I, I'm usually in, I'm usually in that same boat too. But um, there's always exceptions to to everything. So, well, Shannon, this has been an awesome conversation. Before we get to my final question for you, if there are people that want to follow along with your budding career as you finish up your PhD program, where can we find you? Social media, LinkedIn, anything like that. Yeah, this is so nice. I'm on most of the social media platforms, Shannon Scoville on Twitter, Shannon Scoville on LinkedIn, uh, Shannon Scoville one on Instagram, because I had a hacking problem. So I did add the one there just to distinguish my name. Um, yeah, Facebook, I'm there. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm always excited. I love talking about this kind of stuff. It's, it's so much fun to have this conversation with you. You're doing such incredible work. So to be able to talk about it is great. And, and I really love connecting with people and, and trying to share the message and trying to learn from other people, which is so important. And social media has been really helpful for that, actually. I, I've learned a lot from conversations that I've had with people on social media that I maybe wasn't connected with before and became connected with, uh, like Kayla, through mutual connections. It's been a, a net positive experience for me, which I know <laughs> is a privilege and I'm grateful for it. I want to make that the experience for others. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think we both understand the destructiveness of social media, but we've both been fortunate, I think, to have, as you said, a a net gain and been able to make mutual connections and just overall have a really good experience. So if you use it the right way, it's another lesson that social media can certainly be very powerful and very, very helpful. So I'll throw all that. Thank you for sharing that. I'll throw it all into the show notes for people to reference if they want to follow along. And Shannon, before I let you go, the show is called Dynamic Leaders, and we have talked so much about leadership today, and we've talked about culture, we've talked about growing exposure and how leaders can really help that in women's sports. And I love to give my guests an opportunity to shout out someone in their own life who's been really influential from a leadership standpoint or just in general. Do you have somebody that you want to give a quick shout out to today? Yes, I thought a lot about this question. I've obviously had a lot of personal people in my life, you know, my mom, a a teammate of mine. Um, But because we're talking about growing women's sports, I wanted to talk about a leader who I think is making a a difference that is so big and so important and meaningful. And that is Sally Roberts. I don't know if you follow her work or have talked to her, but she is the founder and CEO of Wrestle Like a Girl, a nonprofit to grow exposure and opportunities for women in wrestling. And, And she's just breaking down barriers and she's just the most welcoming, enthusiastic, positive person. And and I know it's an uphill climb for her because she is leading the charge and it's always hard for the person leading the charge, but she's doing it in such a graceful and exciting, powering way. And so um, I wanted to to shout out her and just to uh, do whatever I can to support the work that she's doing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an awesome shout out. And I'm definitely going to look myself into that a little bit more. I'm not familiar with her work. So I appreciate that. And I really appreciate Shannon, you taking the time to hop on the show today to share your experiences, your expertise. It was fun. Swimming is so interesting. All those individualized like Olympic type sports where it can get a little messy when, when you're younger, but I think you learn just as much as you do from the traditional team sports. And so to get that fresh perspective on, on my end is certainly very nice as well. And I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Oh yeah, this was so fun. I haven't vibed that a lot of these things live like this before. Uh, it's healthy and good. So I appreciate it. <laughs>